Thank you so much, Dr. Aiken. It's an honor to, to be back here on this campus and so thankful for your vision and your heart and hosting this event. Before the ticket came to pay the bill, my, uh, my wife and I had shared the gospel with the Pakistani man who had served us. And I asked him if he had ever read about Isa and the Angel, Jesus in the New Testament. He said, no. But I would, I would like to be able to read the primary source materials. I'd like to know the primary source material if I'm going to read about Jesus, not just what other people have to say about him. And I said, would you, would you like to have a copy of the Injil, the, the, the Bible, the New Testament in, in Urdu? And he said, can you get it in Urdu? And I said, yes, send me, your email, or send me your mailing address and I'll get you a copy and send it to you. After I landed here yesterday, he sent me his address. Where did that conversation happen? In a Native American restaurant in Albuquerque. For an hour and a half, I sat in a Yemeni mosque. And for an hour and a half, we shared the gospel with Yemeni men and, and their sons that were around us. And at the end of that hour and a half, we stood up to leave and one of the men came over to me and he said at 8.30 at night to me being a total stranger, would you come over to my house for dinner? And that conversation didn't happen in Yemen. It happened in Detroit, Michigan. And one of our church members recently saw two Muslim uh, young men come to faith, two Western African Muslim young men come to faith. And where did that take place? Did it take place in Guinea? And the answer was absolutely not. It took place in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, Terry shared a verse earlier. He, you know, he, from, from one man, he created every nation of mankind to dwell upon the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the, the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they, that they should seek God, that they might, might search for him and, and, and find him. Isn't God good? Isn't he great? I mean, he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, and simultaneously as the divine maestro, he orchestrates. He orchestrates the movement of unreached people groups to, to our backyard as well. That's great. That's wonderful. But there is something that is that is missionally malignant. If, if we are willing to, to make great sacrifices to try to reach an unreached people group in another part of the world, and yet the Lord brings someone from that unreached people group to Raleigh-Durham, and we're not willing to walk across the street to share the gospel with him or her. Don't get me wrong. For us as a church, our highest priority, and, and the same, th same should be for all of us, our highest priority for disciple-making and church multiplication should be outside of North America, the greatest needs. The greatest needs exist with outside of North America. That should be, should be highest priority for us. But, but, but what does it say when we, when, we, when we read a passage like this in, in, in Acts chapter 17 and, and we see the movement of the nations around us and, and, and we're... We're followers of Jesus, and there's that unreached person. What, what does it say if we're not willing to cross that street? This is the uh, second 
time that this conference has been uh, taking place. And I was honored to be at the, at the event last year and was uh, just so thankful to be a part of that conversation. The, the planning team from last year asked me to come and, uh, and speak at that moment in time on, on, on a message related to migration and mission and tied it in very much with what we saw there in Acts 17. And we looked at some, some numbers of who was coming and who was living in North America. And so, so the, the planning team this year, when they contacted me and asked me to come and speak again, they said, we want you to do something a little bit different, J.D., building off what you did last year. We, we want you to come and we want you to talk to us about taking things maybe a step farther. We want you to talk about more of a biblical framework for church planting among unreached people groups within, within a North American context. So what I want to do is I want to, to share some slides with you, and I want to make my contact information available to you. Uh, just as I did last year, this is my personal email address. This is my blog. This is where you can find me on social media. Uh, if you didn't see the video last year and you want some of the backstory, I, I did a post last night, and I put last year's slides out there, so I want you to take it and have it. And Lord willing, my plan is to do a post probably in the next couple of days, and I'm going to take this presentation and I want to put it out there and make it available to you as well. Because I, I want you to, to be able to listen for the next few moments and prayerfully engage in the things that we're talking about. You can take notes, but as you've, if you've heard me speak before and use slides before, I often go very quickly on some things, and you may miss some things. So I, I don't want you to, to stress out, you type A people. And I want you to, to be able to, to know that, hey, I can get this information later. Second reason I put this information up here is I want to be able to start a conversation with you. Whether you're here with us or you're, whether you're watching by, uh, by the web, I, I want to have a conversation with you. If, if, there, if there are things that I need to, to, to answer in response to things you hear today or maybe questions that come up or if there's a way that I can help you or maybe point you to someone or a resource on this issue, I want you to have my contact information. I want you to feel comfortable contacting so today, I want to talk about, obviously, a biblical framework for, for church planting and, and some of the challenges that I believe we as evangelicals within a North American context are facing when it comes to reaching the strangers next door, reaching those unreached people groups that have come to us. But, but, but to kind of set us up for where we're going, I, I want to share with you some new information, some new numbers from last year that have come out. So, so right now, about 3% of the world's population lives outside of its country of birth. If this was a single country, that would be the fifth largest country in the world. And so, so that number hasn't changed much since last year. But one of the things that's been happening for some time with the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board, and I believe, I strongly believe, that it's one of the most important things when it comes to advancing the gospel among the nations in North America today is related to this web address behind me, peoplegroups.info. It's a collaborative approach to study and research and understand who are the unreached people groups living among us because, as you, if you heard last year, we basically have better information on an unreached people group living on the backside of the Himalaya Mountains than we do of that same people group living in Birmingham, Alabama. And so this information is continuing being updated, continually being, being studied. And, and, and so what is the new information on the United States and Canada when it comes to unreached people groups? And so here it is. As of a few days ago, I contacted Dr. Brian Galloway, who is the, 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 the lead point person on the diaspora uh, people groups research with the International Mission Board, and here's where we are. As of at least a few days ago, there's probably a, a variation of just a few numbers here, one to five numbers, but here's what we got. India still is number one, China's number two, and the United States is still number three. 
for the countries with the world's largest number of unreached people groups. And Canada comes in at number six. So you say, what does that mean, J.D.? Well, it, what it means is, is that, again, greatest needs outside of North America, but, but the issue, the issue at hand is that in the top six countries in the world when it comes to unreached people groups, two of those are in North America. And so in light of that practical reality, in light of this, this notion of Acts 17, how do we live? How do we respond in light of that? How, as we, as in, how are we as individuals? What about as churches? How are we responding as denominations, as networks? Do our structures, do our missiologies, do our theologies have any practical bearing on these realities? And so I would say just as the highest priorities outside of North America, I'd say the highest priority within North America is among unreached people groups unengaged unreached people groups, which brings me to the next slide. Out of those numbers, the United States has 207 unengaged unreached people groups. So not only are these people groups less than 2% evangelical, but there is no evangelical church planning strategy that's intentionally engaging them. 141 in Canada. And the U.S. is one of the largest evangelical countries in the world. We're not the top. We make probably around numbers eight or nine on the list. But, but this is our reality. So, so with that just reality, knowing that each number tells a story about, of lostness, tells a story of unengagement, then what does it mean when we begin to come to the question about church planting? And so I want to quickly give you a definition that I've operated from for many years, and that is my definition of biblical church planting is that it's evangelism that results in new churches. It's, it's not... We, we plant evangelistic churches, that's important, but it is evangelism that results in new churches, meaning the birthing of churches out of the harvest with 100% conversion growth, with 100% conversion growth. And so I want us to begin to think about this in light of what we see in the scriptures. What do we see in Paul's thinking? What do we see driving his apostolic missiology? And we can hearken back to Romans 15. We can go back to the passage related to the desire of not building upon the foundation that's already been laid and hearkening back to the reference there in Isaiah that he quotes there in Romans 15. But, but then let's begin to ask, what can we learn by just observing the historical account in the book of Acts and some of the things that he writes in his epistles? Now, the book of Acts is not written to teach us how to plant churches. The epistles were not written to teach us how to plant churches. But are there things that we can learn from Luke's account? Are, are there things that we can learn from Paul's writings that could have implications on the way we actually practically do things in a North American context? And I would say I believe that that is the case. So let's think about Paul's missionary journey, number one, Acts 13 and 14. If you read through Acts 13 and 14, what you find is a very fascinating journey. And that is, it's... it's it's that he and Barnabas are sent out from the church in Antioch. They, they go and they, they go to all these communities. They go into the synagogue. They do evangelism. Some believe, some do not believe. They're run out of the synagogue. They go to the next town, find the synagogue, do evangelism. Some believe, some do not believe. And, and, they, and they run out of town, and that process repeats itself. Now, somewhere along this two-year journey, instead of going to new communities and new towns, when you get to the map section in your Bible, you see that the team actually turns around and goes backwards. And that brings us to the first passage I want us to look at today, and that's in Acts chapter 14. When we get to Acts chapter 14, what you find is that when you get around to verse number 21, you, you, you read that when they had made many disciples, or excuse me, when they had preached the gospel to that city, they're talking about Derby, and had made many disciples... 
they return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they're backtracking. They're going back to the places they've just gone through. If you're reading through, if you're following the Acts narrative, you find out they go into the community. There are no believers. They call people to repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and people believe. Some don't believe. Those that believe become known as disciples. So they're going back, and they're, they're, they're doing exactly what Jesus articulated in Matthew's account of the Great Commission. Don't just see them come to faith. Don't just reach them, but teach them. Teach them obedience. Teach them to obey all that I commanded you. And so they return, verse 22, they strengthen the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, we feel very comfortable oftentimes reading that at this point in time, but what I'm about to read to most of us, if we really begin to think about what it is saying, it's going to make many of us feel very uncomfortable. Why? And I would say it's because much of our cultural preferences, cultural traditions. There's nothing wrong with tradition. There's nothing wrong with cultural preference. I am a fourth-generation Southern Baptist and very proud to be one and very thankful to be one. I have my cultural preferences. I think we should sing Victory in Jesus every single Sunday out of the Baptist hymnal, 1975. I think that we should do all three verses, not just verse 1 and 3. I think we should always use an upright piano that's a little bit out of tune that sits over in the corner and not anything fancy like that right there. I mean, that's highfalutin. I mean, I grew up in a church tradition that you don't have drums in a worship gathering. The only people that have drums, you know who those people are, right? The Pentecostals and Ozzy Osbourne, and we don't have anything to do with that stuff. <laughs> And so that's how it should be. Now, is that biblical? Well, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's no biblical prescription, right? So you see what I'm saying? There's cultural preferences. They're okay. But what happens when those cultural preferences begin to push up against gospel advancement and they begin to push up against the sanctification of the saints, the sanctification of churches? And so with that in mind, we read this next verse. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Well, wait a minute. Where did all that come from? With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Wait, wait a minute. So Paul Barmas, you just came through these, these communities. Let's work it in reverse. So, so what's going on here? They're going into these communities. These new disciples have, been, have, have self-identified, have clearly been identified in Lystra, Iconium, and Derby, that they're local expressions of the universal body of Christ. And, and so wait, they, that the church wasn't there before Barnabas and Paul came into that area. And... Clearly, it, that church is about these people that are now called disciples, followers of Christ. And then where these elders, where are they coming from? You know, who, who's sending the email back to Antioch or to the Jerusalem church saying, hey, can you send us some pastors over here to Derby and Lister at Iconium? It, sh it shouldn't surprise us when we read a passage like that and, and, and then we begin to look at a, a passage like Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus, the reason I left you on Crete was to, to put what remained in order. This island, a hundred mile long, put what remained in order and in every town appoint elders. Where were the pastors coming from? From out of the churches? Where were the churches coming from? From the disciples that were made out of the harvest and they were what we would call covenanting together, self-identifying together. So when I look through the scriptures, here's what I see. I see, this, I see this pathway to planting that shows up time and time again with what little descriptions that we have. And it looks very much like this. There is this order. There is this notion of gospel proclamation. Disciples are made. Uh, they don't even talk about disciples until the gospel is being proclaimed. 
they don't even talk about church until disciples are coming out of the harvest. They don't even talk about finding pastors until churches come into existence. And then the pastors are oftentimes coming from within the people themselves. So again, it shouldn't surprise us when we read Titus chapter 1, verse, or chapter, or Titus chapter 1, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, about the qualifications of an elder. Other than being apt to teach and able to exhort for the, from the scriptures, most of those things you can't figure out about a brother unless what? You know him because you've been in community with him in this thing called the local expression of the universal body of Christ, the church. And so, so we see this 30,000-foot this perspective of this happening on this first missionary journey, this, this pathway, this process. And, and I would say that, that, yes, it's descriptive, but at the same time, I think that there are elements embedded in this that we need to keep in mind that have bearing and implication and principles on what we do today, particularly among unreached people groups. So that's one example of a high-altitude perspective. Let's, let's, let's zero in and let's say, okay, Paul, can you give us a little bit of details on a situation in which you were planting churches? And I would say one of the best examples is to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And again... Paul's not writing 1 Thessalonians to tell us about planting churches, but he is, in chapter 1, talking to the Thessalonians about how they came into the kingdom of God and, and what happened once they were sanctified and, and, and they began to understand what, was, what it meant to be a kingdom citizen and how they saw these things in, the, in this apostolic team. So listen to what Paul says here in verses 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has, he's chosen you because our gospel, our good news, this, this message, this, this evangelistic work we're doing, this disciple-making work came to you not only in word but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then listen to what he writes here. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in these two regions, these two provinces, Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you go back and read the narrative in Acts of the birth of the Thessalonican church, most New Testament scholars say that Paul and his team went through that area and the Holy Spirit did this work in about three weeks. Now, I'm not saying that we put a time frame on, on the birth of churches like that, but I just want you to keep that in mind in this perspective because what we begin to see is that when it came to Paul and the work that he was doing in Thessalonica, beyond these four things, there's not much that, we, that he brings to the table when it comes to disciple-making that results in the birth of new churches. There's the seed... There are the sowers to bring that seed. There is the Holy Spirit working in power. And, and then you have this Holy Spirit prepared soil. And, and what, what, what do we see happening here? You see, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
You, you, became, you, you, you looked at us as an example. You learned from us. We lived an imitatable lifestyle before you in such a short window of time. We, we imitate what we know, don't we? And we know what's modeled before us, right? What's modeled before us is, is, is what leaves an impression upon us about how we're to do things. And, and in our mind, it's, hey, this is the right way to do things. I remember one time when I was, when I was pastoring in Indiana, I was working to train up and raise up a, a leader to work with our students and uh, just a godly sister who, who just loved the Lord, was faithful, faithful in the word, faithful in witnessing, just always there. And I had been modeling before she and some other adults about, about how, to, how to lead a Bible study time. And, and I wanted her to just open in prayer one night. And I'd been modeling this for some time. And so now I was going to ask her, Shirley, sister, would you, would you open us in prayer tonight? And I'll never forget what she told me. She said, oh, brother J.D., she said, I could never do that. And I was shocked. I was shocked. She'd been in the kingdom for many, many years. I said, Shirley, why can't you open us in prayer tonight before this Bible study? She said, because you pray such beautiful prayers. I could never pray like that. What had I been modeling before her? That if you're going to do prayer right before a Bible study, it, it has to be like someone with his Ph.D., and I wasn't trying to be that way, but my, my tradition, my culture, my preference, that which lifted my heart in sanctification and worship and praise to God was, was indirectly impacting the sister. And she was thinking, okay, that's the, that's the way it has to be done. I can't do that. You not only became imitators of us and the Lord, but you became an example. Now, this is amazing. In two provinces, you became an example, and the faith in God goes forth in all these different directions. So these Thessalonican believers have developed this reputation in a fairly short period of time. When it comes to following Jesus and living in covenant community with one another, identifying ourselves as the local church in Thessalonica, we're serious about this. We're serious about living out this kingdom ethic in relation to God, in relation to one another who call themselves brothers and sisters, and in relation to the outsider, and the gospel is spreading, and it's going forth. And Paul is saying all that we brought to the table was this, ourselves, the seed, the gospel, the spirit, you guys were the soil, we modeled it before you, and the sanctification process took off. When I look at church planting, and when I'm training church planters within our church, within our faith family, whether they're going into other parts of the world outside of North America, or whether they're going to places within North America, our highest priority, our expectation is that they're going to go as church planters to work among unreached people groups, and plant churches among unreached people groups. That, whether that's in, in India or whether that's in Birmingham, Alabama, our expectation is that if you're going, you're going to work among unreached people groups, unreached, unengaged people groups. And when you begin to boil it all down and you look at what is this thing called church planting about, I think it comes down to about three things. It comes down to, to, to evangelism. It comes down to discipleship, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. And it comes down to pastoral development. So, so it's, it's not enough just to see them come to faith. It's not enough just for these disciples to come together and just be together as a group. Do they self-identify? Do they covenant, as we would say in Baptist tradition? Do they covenant together to be the local expression of the body of Christ, to, to live out this kingdom ethic? And then, like we see in Acts chapter 14, like we see in Titus chapter 1, what about their pastors? 
How are we as teams going to take theological education to them to raise up pastors from among the people that we've seen come into the kingdom and begin to grow in their faith over time? And so when we're training people to go out on these church planning teams, being their dentists, their school teachers, their hospital administrators, they work in construction, what are we training them to do? We're training them and equipping them in evangelism and discipleship, and we're training them to go out and train pastors. So, so for me, when I talk about church planting, I really feel that we see this very heavily in the scriptures time and time and time again. And when we get to this point of thinking about church planting, I think we have to immediately stop. And I think we have to be really honest. Among evangelicals, particularly in North America, and we have to ask about some challenges. Some challenges that I think are, are, are real and present when it comes to the issue of seeing churches birthed out of the harvest among, among unreached people groups. And so, so the first challenge that I want to share with you, I want to share just a few. The first challenge I want to share with you and is, is one, well, let me say it this way. All these challenges are going to push us. They push me. But, but, I, but I want to say I, I do not have it all figured out. I'm a learner. I'm praying for God's grace. I'm confessing sin when I'm falling short. I'm praying for God to, to guide us in what we're doing in our teams through the potholes we hit traveling down the road. So I'm a learner as well. So, so hear me locking arms with you in this journey. But here's the thing. When we begin to look at these challenges, I, I really want us to stop and think and ask, what is it that's within me that makes me feel uncomfortable about hearing these and begin to allow ourselves to go back to the scriptures and say, well, is it, am I uncomfortable because it's unbiblical or am I uncomfortable because it's my cultural preference? It's my cultural traditions. Again, that doesn't mean that they're wrong, but, but, but in light of those numbers of unengaged, unreached people groups, in light of the five billion people on the planet that have no relationship with Jesus, in light of how do we see the gospel spread throughout Macedonia and Achaia, I mean, does my cultural preference and my cultural traditions get in the way sometimes? So challenge number one is what I believe to be an ecclesiological challenge. An ecclesiological challenge. And, 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 I, and I think Malfurs, who's a DTS professor, makes this statement that's really important. He says it's imperative that before we start a church, we know what we're starting. The most critical issue in church planting, especially in North America, the most critical issue is an ecclesiological issue. How do you answer the question, or how you answer the question, what is a church, affects everything you do. Everything, your strategy, your methods, it affects who can be involved in this, what it means to raise up leaders, pastoral leadership within those new churches. It affects everything. So this foundation is very critical. If your theology is, is distorted, it's going to affect your missiology, and that's going to affect your field practices. It's going to affect the implications of what you do among unreached people groups. What are we planting? I don't have time, obviously, in this session to, to unpack an incredible amount of detail on ecclesiology, but I want to get the wheels turning and I want to approach it from a little different angle than maybe we're used to listening to and thinking about just to get us thinking maybe a little differently. When Jesus says, Simon Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. He's made that kingdom confession that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Messiah, and upon this church, Jesus is going to build his church. And as he does so, those people that have made that confession, they come together to live out what I was calling a moment ago, this kingdom ethic. This kingdom ethic tells us how to live in relation to God, to other people that are a part of this, this thing called the body of Christ, these kingdom citizens, and how we're to live in relation to the outsider. And that's so critical because we see these things over and over again. I tell you, you've heard that it was said, da-da-da-da-da, 
but da 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 that you, you can't just cut your brother down because you're angry. You, you can't just live any way you want to because you're, you're upset. You can't, when you come together, just do whatever you want to do as a church. How does the kingdom ethic speak and how we relate to God, one another, as followers of Jesus and the outsider? The Bible gives us these metaphors of family, of its priests. It's, 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 it, this thing that we're planting, is, it, it's, it's referred to as a bride, as, as a temple, as a light. And you begin to see all of these things, these metaphors, pointing to something greater. Or as a result of what they do, it's because of their connection to something greater. Time and time and time again, we see these over and over again. What are we planting? It's about kingdom citizens who live according to a kingdom ethic in relation to God, other kingdom citizens, and those that are outside of the kingdom. And, these, and, these, and the way that these kingdom citizens live together is in this thing called kingdom communities, or what we come to call local churches, if you will, this, this local expression of this universal body of Christ. What are we planting? What, what is it that we're getting at? And I would begin to say that some of these characteristics of this thing that we're planting is that it's more about community and it's less about just having acquaintances with these other kingdom citizens. It's, it's more about all people using their gifts in the body and less about me just being passive in this process. It's more organic and it's less institutional in the sense of how we think about institutions and businesses today. It's something that's really simple and it's less about structure. It's something where you see all body life being priests, all body life being ministers. It doesn't rule out pastors. It doesn't rule out deacons. But it's less of a focus upon those that we call ministers with a capital M. Now, keep in mind, I'm a pastor saying all this, all right? I'm not, I'm not a missionary. I'm not, the, I'm not that apostolic type. I'm, I'm a pastor of a very large church saying this. So, so when I say this, I'm pointing fingers back at myself and I'm saying, J.D., how are you? How are you doing in this process of not only living this out as per, in a personal way, but in equipping the saints for the work of the ministry? The Bible talks about this thing that we talk about planting called the church that has a common call, a common confession, a common commitment. It's, it's about being a part of this common community, this common commission. What is this that we're planting? I would say it this way. And there's a lot packed into this. And I'll tell you why I say it this way. Because it's a different angle than most of what we were thinking about when we think about church. That a local church is a regenerate, baptized body of kingdom citizens who self-identify or covenant together as a local expression of the universal body of Christ to live out the kingdom ethic together. So why do you say it that way, J.D.? You didn't say anything about pastors there. Well, I would say, does the kingdom ethic in God's word tell us about pastors? And I would say, yes. J.D., you didn't say anything about the church having communion there. Well, I would ask, okay, well, is there anything in the kingdom ethic that talks about the church when it gathers together to partake of the Lord's Supper? I would say, yes. Uh, J.D., you didn't say anything about, about in, this, in this understanding of what we're trying to plant, that it, that it has something to do with, with evangelism or whether it has something to do with, with missions. Does the kingdom ethic talk about how we relate on behalf of God to the outsider? I would say, yes. So for those of you that those of you that are in my tribe, the Southern Baptist tribe, and you're you're saying, well, I don't know, is this guy hold the BFM two thousand? I do, I do, I totally agree with it. But I approach it from this angle because I think it's critical for us to to, to think about this issue. Dever says a great thing here. He says, remembering that the church as a people should help us recognize what's important and what's not important. And so if it comes down to one word, it has a lot to do with relationships to God 
other kingdom citizens that we unite together with on a local expression in Derby, Lister, Iconium, Antioch, Thessalonica, wherever the Holy Spirit bursts these churches and in how we relate to the outsider. So, so I have to begin to ask this question before I talk about the next challenge, and that is, how is our ecclesiology? How do we answer the question, what is a church? Because that'll affect everything that we do when we look at that Somali community, when we look at that Saudi community, when we look at that Nepali community, and we begin to say, how in the world will they ever, how in the world will they ever have, have someone who can stand up for 45 minutes and before a crowd give a monologue expounding scripture? Now, I believe in expository preaching. I, I believe in verse by verse expository preaching. I believe that's how we teach it and that's how it should be done among the nations of the world coming into the kingdom of darkness or out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But here's the thing that's critical. Does it have to be the way that we oftentimes prefer in our very traditional American local church gatherings? Can it manifest itself culturally in a different way so that it may be a little bit less complicated and that brothers in the Lord could be able to, to be great expository preachers, but maybe they don't have to do it like J.D. Payne does it on Sundays at the church at Brook Hills? Can it be that way and still be right? How's our ecclesiology? Challenge of complexity. The challenge of complexity. Over time, churches oftentimes become more and more complex. It's, it's natural. It's not anything that that's, that's wrong with that. But, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, when it comes to planting the church, how complex are we going to plant this thing? Because it'll only become more and more structured, more and more complex over time. And, and this is really critical because when you see in Thessalonica, the accusation being leveled against the apostolic team is that, hey, these people have turned the world upside down. You don't turn the world upside down with complexity. You don't turn the world upside down with, with, with complexity. So, so how complex are we doing what we're doing? Because, because it has this relationship on the gospel spreading throughout Macedonia and all of Achaia. The more complex it is in what we're doing, what we're modeling before people, that they may be imitators of us and of the Lord, the more complex it becomes, the more difficult it's going to be for them to reproduce it doesn't mean it's not reproducible. It's just going to be more difficult for them to reproduce it. I remember a pastor telling me one time, he said, J.D., he said, if you're going to, if you're going to plant a church right, you need $110,000. And I didn't want to be a smart aleck, but I just said to him, I said, what's your definition of right? He smiled and he said, I see what you mean. I was sitting around a table with some church planters one time. We were having lunch, and one of the church planters that was there, he said he, he was trying to raise $400,000 to plant a church. Again, I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck, but I asked him with all sincerity, I said, how much money do we need to, to reach the $5 billion? How complex is what we do? How complex is this thing called evangelism and disciple making that we're, that we're doing? I really think, folks, I really think that if, if disciple making and church planting was as complex in the first century as it is in North America today, the gospel would have never left the Middle East. What have we made it out to be? I'm not saying take it below anything biblical. And I'm not saying factor out contextualization, but I am saying how complex in light of this great need. Here's the other challenge. Now, keep in mind, I'm a pastor saying this, all right? I see myself very much pastor-teacher, so I, I, say, I say this. And it's the challenge of pastoral missiology. The, the church within the West 
and rightly so, over, over centuries has grown and developed and matured. It's been sanctified. That's great. That's wonderful. There are mature church structures all around us. This is an example of, of, of a product of mature church structures. I'm an example of that. My background is an example of that. I, the, the church where I pastor, very mature church structures. And so what begins to happen over time when everything is, is very mature church structure in its orientation, everything begins to be filtered through a pastoral lens. And so we begin to think about not just pastoral ministry in terms of pastoral ministry, but we begin to think about apostolic type work in terms of pastoral ministry. Now, I believe very much that the Apostle Paul had this apostolic imagination and this pastoral heart wed together. We see that. You read on in the second, uh, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, and you see that pastoral heart. Read all of his letters. You see that pastoral heart. Don't hear me polarizing these things. But what I'm saying is that over time, I think it's begun to be polarized within the West. And so even our understanding of how we do evangelism is filtered through pastoral lenses. It's, and I think about this. The pastor, rightly so, the passions, the gifts, the heart is to shepherd, it's to nurture, it's to, it's to, it's to pull in rather than oftentimes to, to release it's because there's this notion of care, this notion of compassion, this notion of protection. Those aren't bad things. But when those things begin to impact the empowering and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry in the apostolic sense of seeing them sent out as missionaries in what they're doing locally and globally, it becomes a little problematic. And so we begin to think about how do we reach unreached people groups through church planting processes, and we begin to think through this pastoral matrix, this pastoral lens. That's the way it has to be done. We imitate what we know. We know what's modeled before us. If that's all that's modeled before us within our Western context, within our geography, that's all we know. Now, let's go to another country, another part of the world, an unreached people group over there. Let's go to the Tibetans over there, not the Tibetans over here, the Tibetans over there, and we, we're okay. We're very comfortable thinking in terms of an apostolic imagination and, and what I've been saying. It's very palatable. It's very acceptable. But bring it back to our own geography, and our missiology begins to transform and become something that's more pastoral rather than something that's more apostolic. This is one of the biggest challenges. I believe one of the biggest challenges in the West today, and the church has not experienced this in 2,000 years, is this. How does the church in the West that has mature church structures, where the shadow of the steeple looms large, even in a very secular context, how does the church keep both wings on the airplane? How does that pastoral development continue to happen, the maturation of churches continue to happen, the revitalization of churches continue to happen that's already established and in place. But in the context, that same geography where you have all these unengaged, unreached people groups that's going to require a cross-cultural approach to engage them, how do you allow for that Paul, those Pauls and Barnabases, those Timothys, those, those, those people to be sent out like we see in Acts chapter 13? How do you allow for it to happen within the same geographical context? And our missiology is not there. And our structures are not there. Again, do it in another part of the world, we're okay. In our geography, we're not there. Let me, for the sake of time, let me go to the last challenge. It's a challenge of numbers. It's a challenge of numbers. I'm not opposed to numbers. Not at all. All of our teams, I challenge them to set goals and set num numerical goals. goals. Uh, I've written a book on developing missionary strategy. And in that book, I say, set numerical goals. But I, I say, don't lock them into concrete. But see, here's the thing what I see today. We're so numbers-driven. We're so numbers-driven that, that, that this notion of, of numbers spills over into our, our, our missionary activity to the degree that oftentimes we're willing to, to hijack this pathway to planting. Evangelism, discipleship, local church self-identified, pastoral leadership developed. 
we're willing to hijack that for the sake of getting the number because we think, we think we're called to go and plant churches. Where in the Bible are we told to plant churches? We'll plant churches all day long. We'll, we'll set goals of seeing 10 churches planted this year and we plant 10 churches, everybody celebrates and no one asks the question, how many people came out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? And so I would just ask the question, where do churches come from? And when we begin to think about it, the scriptures are very clear on this issue of seeing these churches birthed out of the harvest. But I would say that much of what we're doing is the shuffling of sheep around in the kingdom. We're planting more churches at the end of the day, but we're just moving around the saints. We're seeing people come to faith. We're seeing the work of evangelists done. We're seeing missional activity happen. That's good, but it's not sufficient. It's not going to get us, I believe, beyond reaching that 26% evangelical population in the U.S., not to mention the unengaged, unreached people groups. And so I would just begin to say, I begin to ask this question. When When it comes to church planting, how called up are we in numbers where we're willing to say, for the sake of having another number of of, of an organization structure in place that we call the local church that God will do good things through and amazing things through. Don't hear me say that. How much are we willing to say, I'm willing to, to do that and hijack the process of engaging unreached people groups because it takes too much time. Because when these people come to faith, they don't know right off what they're supposed to do. They've only come into the kingdom a few days ago. They, they don't know they're supposed to give. And, and, and how am I going to be, as, as a white guy, I'm speaking for myself, how, how can I be a pastor for, for, the, for this, this Bhutanese community of believers, this Bhutanese church? Because, again, pastoral missiology, I don't see me going in and raising up pastors and training them to have their own pastor. And so I begin to say, how can they support me in this ministry? How far are we willing to go with the numbers? I'm all for numbers, but not for the sake of kingdom advancement. Not for the sake of of casting aside things that we need to cast aside, that that we feel like are part of our cultural traditions, preferences. So what's our response to this as we, we bring all this together? What's our response? I would say just keep in mind, good quote from Roland Allen. Well, this is a quote from me. I'll give you a quote from Roland Allen. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. Make the exception the expectation. Make the exception the expectation. The apostolic approach that we're seeing in the scriptures is really the the exception in North America. I would say make it the expectation because that's the expectation of of, of church, what we call church planting that we see in the scriptures. Make it the the expectation rather than, than the exception right now. Good quote from Roland Allen. He says, we either must drag down St. Paul from his pedestal as the great missionary or else we must acknowledge there is in his work that quality of universality. Alan was a high church, almost Catholic Anglican priest. You see, we want the apostles' doctrine. We want the, the apostles' results. We don't want their practice. Let's, say, let's think about that. Keep it simple. Can we do that? Can we keep it biblical and simple? Can we keep it simple, highly reproducible, that the gospel may spread throughout Macedonia and Achaia? Keep it simple. I want to see ordinary, everyday believers, not just the 10 talented type people involved in this type of work, 
Yes, the ten talented type people. What about the three talented type people? The five talented type people? I want to see, I want to see the teachers. I want to see the plumbers. I want to see the mechanics within our church family go out and do this work. And if I make this thing so complicated in my model and in my teaching and in my ecclesiology and my pastoral approach to missions, they're going to say, J.D., there's no way I could be a part of that in a substantial role. You do it. I'll support you, but you do it. But here's what I found. By God's grace, by God's grace, when you begin to teach through a simple approach to biblical church planting and you begin to cast the vision of lostness of unengaged unreached people groups in North America the Holy Spirit begins to work among people and they say I didn't know I could do that here they say I didn't I thought I, I thought I had to go to another country and that's again highest priority they'll say I didn't know I didn't know we could do that here and you will begin to see people in the marketplace form teams you'll begin to see them come together for equipping and training and you'll begin to see them transfer their jobs and they'll leave Birmingham, Alabama, and they will move to the northern part of this country, to the western part of this country, to the eastern part of this country, and they will incarnate their lives among unengaged, unreached people groups, and they will begin to say, how do I engage them with evangelism? And how do I take those new disciples and teach them obedience? And how do I lead them on a journey to covenant together as a local expression of five people or 10 people or 20 people out of this unreached people group? And then how do I teach them all that my local church has poured into me on how I need to be training them theologically? But you see, if we're not casting that vision, if we're modeling something that, that, that's not on the radar screen, they're going to think that it's not there. It's not a possibility. Plant the church that is, not the church to come. Plant the church that is, not the church to come. What do I mean by that? Most of what we're doing in church planting is a variation on the theme of what we personally experienced as a part of our mother churches or our home churches those churches have been sanctified for 50 years 100 years and we want to take all that that's been developed by the spirit over decades and we want to take it and immediately put it down over here among this people group and we find out that it's putting Saul's armor on David and they can't deal with it and we begin to shift gears and we think, well, maybe the way to do church planning is gathering long-term kingdom citizens together that know how to manipulate, and I don't say that in a bad way, know how to organize and lead and adjust the structures that are of a mature church context. And then maybe we'll try to reach them with the gospel and then we'll try to assimilate them into our local church. Very pastoral, not bad, not bad. I would say plant the church that is. Plant that church that the Spirit births and then teach them to obey and allow those cultural manifestations to come about over time, over time. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we are, we are so grateful to call you Father. We are humbled by, by that. And Father, forgive me, forgive us when we take that lightly. Forgive me, forgive us where, as your kingdom citizens, we, we do not live out the kingdom ethic when it comes to the stranger next door. God, we pray. We pray as we, we look around us and we see what you've been doing in orchestrating the movement of the peoples. That, Father, we would, we would, by your grace, by your spirit, adjust, adjust our, our, our cultural preferences the things that, that are near and dear to our heart, but not necessarily biblical, and, and, in, and in some cases hinder the maturation of your body. And so, God, give us grace. 
Lord, help us, we pray. We, we know that you're good. We know you desire the nations to come to know you, and we thank you for your mercy and grace to us. Father, I pray for, for all of us, myself, our brothers and sisters here, those that are watching, that, that Lord, you would in days to come give us, give us an understanding how to apply such things within our context. We're all in so many different contexts. We, we have so many different responsibilities, different roles, different titles here, but God, we, we pray for your wisdom from on high to know how to apply such things in our environments. We pray, Father, Father, for the advancement of the gospel, and that just as Paul would write later to the Thessalonians, the desire to see the gospel spread rapidly and with honor, Lord, we pray that too. Father, we pray this, that the stranger next door may become the stranger no more. In Jesus' name, amen.